there's this great quote. I, I forget who said it, though, but it reads, um, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? That's so true. And that basically just means um, when you're ready, you'll learn that next bit, even though you've read it 10 times, but when you're ready, you'll be able to consume that new information. What's up, folks? I'm your host, Adley Christoffels, and you're listening to A Curious Life, the show where we delve into how the trait of curiosity has impacted the lives and careers of our guests. Campfire-like discussions that serve as a window into the essence of who they are. Today's guest, Marina Heyman, and I go back a while, right back to one of the biggest projects I've worked on in the early stages of my career. So today, we get to find out the path he has followed, the value of a diverse cultural environment, and the lessons we can learn by extension. Welcome to the show, Marinus. Thanks, Adley. Happy to be here. Cool. As you know, the show focuses on the trait of curiosity. So today, we want to find out the essence of Marinus. And we want to understand what your life has been like and how uh, curiosity has played a part in that. So take us on a journey. Where were you born? You know, how many siblings did you have? What were, what was your, your, your family life like? How did that impact you? All right. Um, so I was born in Pretoria, South Africa, uh, with two siblings, an older brother and older sister. Um, they were quite... So you, so you were the baby? Yeah, then. oh yeah. I was, I think, um, <laughs> and nine years younger than my brother and seven years younger than my sister. So, so Okay, so were you spoiled? Very, very spoiled and privileged. <laughs> um, so we grew up with... A father who uh, graduated an engineer and a mother who was a nursery school teacher. And um, when my brother and sister grew up, we had very, very, um, I want to say little income because my father just invested everything either towards his own learning, studying his MBA or uh, into the the nursery school that my mother had uh, started when just before I was born, actually. So, so they didn't have that much growing up. Um, when I was young, I kind of got the tail end of it. So luckily, um, and, and that's kind of leading into how I was spoiled. Um, not, not ridiculously, but obviously more than, than my siblings. So, um, so we, we had a wonderful childhood. Uh, my, my parents are, are great, great people and great parents. And um, my father always had this this notion of kind of academics first, although I was a terrible student at school. Um, and the reason for his academics first was he he grew up with with grandparents who were all self taught um, and who, who valued uh, valued learning more than the academic kind of qualification. Sure. Uh, his father was a, a professor in electrical engineering, all, um, again, starting from a very humble basis and then, and then pushing that continuous learning. And my father kind of built that into me. Um, can, can I sure. ask just, just quickly a quick aside mm. on that, right? With the availability of quality information and knowledge readily available on the internet, do you think that 
the same emphasis should be put on a structured academic kind of path, especially within technology, right? Um, when three years down the line, you know, the information that you gain, you know, at the start of your career or at the start of your course, rather, may be even be outdated. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, right. So, so let me put it to you in this way. So our curriculum in school and in, in varsity is, is very, very structured. And I think no one has a real alternative method for that. And with the COVID pandemic, that has been kind of turned upside down. And we'll see the fallout from not having that co-located, facilitated learning. Um, but it opens up new new avenues, right? So that's that's for kind of pre um, pre varsity pre graduate uh, uh, well pre graduate education. When we look at technology, it was it was the case in, in my studies, the case of all my peers and, and the people that I had managed were all way older than I was. That all technology um, training was essentially outdated by the time that they had to uh, that they got to implement anything. So I think in in the tech space you will definitely see um, Google uh, stepping up because they've already rolled out the Google Academy type learning. You will see big firms um, partnering with universities to actually teach the relevant both practical and theoretical components that are required. And and do you, do you think that's like short, sharp, targeted courses? Um, yeah, so so I think Google uh, they're pushing the kind of the basic stuff right now. So uh, user experience, um, basics of coding, basics of project management, product management, and so on. And that'll be a tremendous basis for for guys entering the workplace, not not necessarily uh, that want to go in that formal education direction. I would say though that the underpinning um, components of a, of a formal education helps you to think a little bit differently. Now, Correct. for me, that was, a, that was a massive advantage because I'm a, an inherently lazy person that needed to be forced into that structure. I'm, I'm, I'm lazy if I'm not given a target and given this is the roadmap for improvement. Right, um, but when I'm given that, it's like, oh, okay, I want to progress to the next level because I don't want to be stuck where I am. Right, so it's it's kind of a um, it's called a creative tension. Right, so you give me the challenge, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I want to complete the challenge more than I want to do something else, and then I just go for it. So that was that was extremely useful for me, and and I mean, as I said, my my father had instilled this this continuous learning. Um, motto in, in our lives and uh, just never kind of subsided. So so I was a terrible, I, I would say, kind of mid-range uh, student at school. I always focused on sports because I liked that a lot more. Um, in university, almost the same, really. Um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, so I just I knew that, you know, I, I kind of appeased my father by saying, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do my degree. And 
even after my degree, I thought, okay, it's it's great, but you need to continue to study and to learn because otherwise uh, what you'll find will be redundant. And I, that's what I feel right now. So you have many highly educated people that uh, that have very little sway in their own uh, in their own field of expertise just because they've actually stopped learning. And you have guys that are absolutely fantastic rock stars in their field um, just because they never stopped. And and that and that is podcasts. Yeah. That is Clubhouse. Everything. That is you know books it's it's and that's the thing i love about and and this this concept of yeah. lifelong learning right or continuous learning you can never learn everything even if you choose mm-hmm. to specialize there's so much to learn you know and there's always so much more that you can add to make what you know more complete it's lifelong learning yeah and and there's this great quote i forget who said it though but it reads um when the student is ready the teacher will appear, right? That's so true. And that basically just means um, when you're ready, you'll learn that next bit, even though you've read it 10 times, but when you're ready, you'll be able to consume that new information. So here's the thing with that, right? Is is mm-hmm. if you understand at the core, the, the kind of general vicinity of what you want to learn and what it is you're uh, interested in and want to know more about, it's almost like a puzzle. You start in the middle of the puzzle, Right. And, and, you know, the concept of lifelong learning means that you'll never finish the puzzle, but you start in the middle and you add the bits that fit. And I love the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. There's always a next level to everything. So I try and apply that to, to, to my life right now and go, no matter what it is, find out more. See if there is a structured way of thinking. Not that you adopt everything you learn, you can take anything from 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 what others have done and from their experience, tailor it to yourself, and make that a part of you. The way that, that I've always looked at it is, I really never knew what I wanted to do with my life, and I really never knew which direction I wanted to go, other than general business. As long as it's going forward, you know, I've put the boundaries quite far apart. And as long as it's going uh, ahead in in that general direction, yeah, that was it. Completely agreed. Yeah. So sorry for the diversion there. So we were talking about, um, I guess you and. So, so there was kind of childhood and, and father's discipline that he tried to instill and uh, continuous learning and all of that. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I would say a significant component of my life was uh, growing up, at least, was I was part of the Afrikaans-based, um, you can say, Boy Scouts, right? So that was called the Voortrekkers. So any Afrikaans guy who's very cultural will know the Voortrekkers and most South Africans would. And they installed... Uh, not not instilled, but they helped me to understand and unlock what I would consider my my leadership potential. Right. So tell me what that looks like. I mean, that is fascinating. That is that really is. So 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 kind of just give give us a, a picture of of what that looks like. What does the process look like? What do the people in there look like? How did that collective of process and people? instill a sense of leadership in you? So 
if you think about it, it, it has teamwork written all over it with small tasks and small goals that you try to meet. And that's from the age of seven when you actually start with the organization, right? So there's a lot of discipline. There's, I mean, little badges and then kind of achievements that you get and unlock. But through the whole process of working within a team and trying to help the team, lead the team, support the team, all of that, different people understand or get to understand their strengths and get to understand how it works to just perform in a team. And as I said, to is it like, like the Boy yeah. Scouts? So it's the Boy Scouts. Okay. It's the Afrikaans version of the Boy Scouts. I think it's it's a phenomenal undertaking to actually go through that. And I was in, in the first package for, for about 12 or 13 years. And as I said, uh, it made a wonderful impression on me. Um, but at the end, I, I left the, the movement just because of, I would say, certain differences in ideology that I only realized later on were not where I wanted to go. Yeah, not quite aligned. And, and I mean, the, the, the people to a large extent are fantastic and wonderful people, but but there are factions that that pulled back to the to the extremes to the extremes, and I really didn't like that. Can we delve into that just a little bit? Sure. Okay, cool. So, and, and for context here, right? So, so here's my belief, right? It's mm-hmm. people, it's individuals, and and the system of apartheid was, you know was exactly that segregation right and no matter on which side of the fence you grew up it was segregated so even within the afrikaans community that or the white community that was seen as everyone in that camp is you know a supporter of the system it's not true i children growing up in that environment like i didn't know any better right also didn't know better and there will obviously always come a time when you do realize like you've just said you know that Actually, you know what? Now, now that I'm kind of seeing what's happening here, there are parts of this thing that that doesn't sit well with me, you know. But it's individuals, it's it's people, and obviously a collection of individuals makes a movement. But similarly, a collection of individuals could stop it. So, if you don't mind, what did that moment actually look like? You know, so so the moment when when through this this organization, so the Ford Record organization that you knew as a kid. And and that had an, uh, by the sound of it, a significant impact, positive impact on your life. I'm thinking that must have been quite a challenge, you know, something that you've been involved in for so long since you were a child, having ideologies that you 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 instinctively, as an individual, realize this isn't for you. What was that like? What did it feel like? Um, it was rough. So so when I was in in Varsity, I, I had a lot of exposure to, to actual philosophical reading, philosophical thought, critical thinking. Yeah. And and the more I delved into it, the more I started to question the underlying assumptions of where I came from and and, and who we are and what decisions we make. Right. Uh, the moment that I really started questioning all of this was just before I matriculated, so just before end of high school. And that kind of expanded, and I started questioning more and more and more and more. And uh, my my parents always told me not to fall to peer pressure. And at some point, there was just this inflection of, wait a minute, am I believing this because it's 
what I really fundamentally believe and have thought through this process, or is it because everyone else around me is thinking and believing this? And that's why I had the departure. So a lot of the um, a lot of the Afrikaans stuff. I mean, Afrikaans is a wonderful language, wonderful people, as you said. But there was some a part I believe is still in the movement, and I just thought, you know what, this is not for me. Okay. I don't know why you're doing this because it's not the liberal way that I'm trying to get to right now. Through life, yeah. So um, I am a liberal. I uh, had extreme liberal views. Now it's a lot more moderate. More, but yes. um, <laughs> as you grow up and, and uh, start to have children, all of that yeah. kind of evolves. And you find your sense of self, right? Well, yes. I I, I did find my sense of self uh, more to the end of my 20s, beginning of my 20s was, uh, th- that was a very rebellious uh, time for me. So take, take, take us through that. So, so, so now, right, we, we've, mm-hmm. we've got you at the start, you, you, your mom, your dad, very entrepreneurial, you know, strong Christian beliefs um, and, and a sense of discipline and, 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 and essentially curiosity and lifelong learning, right? Through the the four trekkers, your primary school, your high school, and you matriculated now. So at this point, are you on your way to university? Are you are you have you just finished high school? So the rebellious stage kind of started at the end of high school, right? So I started questioning everything and everyone uh, because that's what what continuous learning was all about and questioning certain things. Going to varsity actually equipped me with some frameworks and some some questions from uh, from a I would say an ideological and, and philosophical point of view that I didn't have before just because I didn't read in that direction it, it never crossed my path uh, so to speak so I would say that it just had some evolution in in my thinking and then uh, it didn't necessarily sit well with uh, with my family with my community I lost a lot of friends and it was just one of those consequences the, the right choices aren't always the easy choices so now um, is there anything else within your 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 university life that that you want to touch on or or are we now going into start of work yeah I think start of work um, start of work was kind of very same for the university because I started with the family business, uh, so interning at. Do Do you want to take us through that a little bit? So, yeah. so what the family business was? Right. So, so the family business. My father and my brother started Fifth Discipline uh, Consulting in my last year of varsity, and they asked me to just help out as an intern because my father probably thought, look, this guy just wants to go overseas and go, <laughs> go do professional cycling, which was a big thing for me at the point. And um, and he said, well, how about you come and join us and just kind of implement what you've learned in varsity here at this firm, and it's going to be great. So I reluctantly joined because I'm strapped for cash student. What did Fifth, fifth Discipline do? Oh. Right. So, so Fifth Discipline started as a uh, management consulting firm with the ambition to consult on strategy execution and strategy implementation. Right. So that's all, also what I majored in uh, in varsity. And so my first job was to 
understand and dissect and build tons of presentations around the balanced scorecard, which was a big philosophy or management philosophy at the time. Um, and then it, it kind of pivoted towards uh, SaaS analytics implementation and business analysis. Now, uh, you will obviously have a lot more uh, a lot more background in that, but for us it was oh okay there's this uh, there's this analytics uh, software solution that uh, kind of relates to strategy implementation and we have a client called uh, or named Escom that needs this to be implemented mm-hmm. and I was the first consultant on site um, knowing the the ins and outs of strategy execution, not knowing the software at all. And I had a very kind of soft landing in that space. Um, so, so fifth discipline at that point uh, grew, I think to around 20 consultants in just doing business analysis around what we did. And nice one. Uh, over what period of time? So that was over a probably two-year period. That's fantastic, man. It, it comes with its challenges, but from a, a business perspective, you know, and the growth within two years, it doesn't make it easy, but it comes at a cost. Well, not only a cost, it grew way too quickly and we appointed people without having the money. So okay, we went through the first round of retrenchments. Oh, I, can't, I can't remember, probably 2006 or 2007. And so how long after, so was that all within the two years? So it grew to 20 and went down to what, in what space of time? Probably six or seven. Um, and it was just not knowing and understanding the dynamics of consulting in the contracting world, right? Um, then, I mean, as Fifth Discipline grew and as my understanding of the software grew, I could start to implement more and more of my of my experience and, and my knowledge uh, built up to expand both the team at the client, but also then um, expand what we actually do with the software, right? So, so we started with very niche strategy components of the software and went into um, BI, business intelligence at that time, basically the reporting and intelligence component on top of a structured data warehouse. And obviously, that's where we uh, where we admit. Now, um, I would say then Fifth Discipline grew again um, in two thousand and two thousand and eight to about twenty twenty five people, and again we had another round of of retrenchment because. Uh, we were just terrible at at pipeline management and selling. Yeah. So, the, is, um, was it the bench that became an issue at the time? Yes. Because that's kind of the the cyclical nature of consulting, right? Is there's demand, and then, well, then the demand goes away, but then you've got a hell of a cost. Yep. But then you've got a massive cost on the bench in salaries. Uh, yes. Okay. It's fixed over it because although some of our competitors at the time put the put the risk on the individual consultants. So if they didn't have work, they wouldn't get paid. We decided to to absorb that risk in the firm because we believed that we needed to 
to teach grow. all the basics. So we had we had massive learning programs within the firm. We, we helped all of our consultants with a lot of tools to actually help them be productive and, and effective. Mm-hmm. And that obviously added to the overhead. Um, and then when we didn't have the work, we were just completely exposed. So that happened again in 2010. And the last one, which was a very big one, was in 2013. So in 2013, we grew up the firm to about 35 consultants. Um, we were quite successful. We had the opportunity to build and sell some of our software um, as as a copyrighted modeled analytics product. So just pause there for a second quickly. So mm-hmm. started out as a management consultant firm with you, your dad and your brother, grew that uh, and it shrunk again, grew, shrunk over a period of time. But in 2013, you know, it was successful again, 35 consultants. But what was the software component of that? So we believed that hmm, consulting in itself is a oh, essentially a loser's game if, if you if you don't operate in in massive volumes. So what we decided was to invest the bench time essentially on software development so you have some annuity income to just diversify your income source and that is a lot i don't want to say easier but a lot more sustainable than trying to sell time of consultants right and we managed to actually build a very good product and sell it to escom what did it do Uh, um so it aggregated and analyzed all of the network equipment for the utility and assisted with predictive maintenance and a predictive reporting that the electricity regulator required. Okay, so this was actually ahead of its uh, pretty ahead of its time the concept and the idea of you know just in time maintenance and predictive maintenance as opposed to you know, fixing it after it has broken um, changes the game, really. What impact did that have when you've implemented it at ESCOM? And did you use SAS for the predictive part? So uh, the impact that it had, we couldn't really measure, so I can't really tell you. I'm sure that it was fantastic. Um, We used SAS for the implementation, and... A long story short, and I, I can't go into the details because of uh, non-disclosures, but um, the relationship had a copyrighted component that uh, that we tried to protect. Um, and uh, we went through a number of uh, legal processes uh, with, with both SAS and ESCOM. And long story short, we won the battle and lost the war yeah and that ended up uh, essentially closing us down so we couldn't diversify quickly enough to cover our costs to maintain or to pay the salaries so so that um yeah so that ended uh, essentially ended our last round of participant consulting and it closed the company well at that stage, I was appointed as CEO to essentially manage the the uh, legal component, but also manage the the different uh, decisions that needed to make uh, to be made on an operational level. 
Um, okay, so the transition essentially, um, yeah. and and that transition was really towards exit. So so now you've had, you know, a lot of lessons learned, and I would imagine, you know, if my own experience is anything to go by. Those lessons were extremely valuable mm-hmm. for where you went from there, because um, th- those those moments teach, <laughs> whether you want the lesson or not. But where did you go from there? So, so at that point, uh, I need to give you a little bit of background. So we decided to close down the consulting business altogether, and I had to retrench essentially eighty percent of the company, including myself, and. We still had some of the software components that we needed to maintain and possibly expand. So the the software team of about five people continued uh, where I had to exit the business. Uh, My my salary just couldn't be born. And we had this massive uh, both salary and retrenchment package liability that we had to pay out or that we had to pay off, right? Um, Which meant all of us at some point we, we paid Salaries on credit cards. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and was that thirty five people? Yeah. So At that point? we went from. So yeah, the the business essentially had thirty five total, and thirty of those just including yourself. Had to go. Okay, that's including one myself, yeah. rather large cost. So 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 some of that you had to pay on credit cards. Yeah, I mean. At the end of the day, it was it uh, it was a, a big liability. Um, my father took the biggest hit. The the rest of us did the same, and we had to pay down debt. So, following that, uh, I looked for a job, and based on based on my network, I could get a job, or I got a job at uh, at Ernest yep. Young. Um, and I stayed there for two years, literally just paying off, paying off debt. And that was fantastic because EY um, was the perfect fit for me because I had all of this corporate experience uh, as a consultant. And now I had this platform that has tons of corporate yeah, clients. And resources. And and resources to, to well, resources to invest in in specific areas and we did during my time i picked up the the relationship with sas on airwise behalf and we invested a lot and i got a team of 10 interns that i had to manage from sas that were all uh pdis and a couple of fantastic guys came out of that and we had the opportunity to to take the take their skills from a sales point and give them the consulting skills uh, needed to expand. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Heights. In their words, Heights makes smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help us take care of our brains so it can take care of us. I came across Heights when I set off on a trip and surprisingly, it's still going where I wanted to take better care of mind, body, and soul. So along with doing more exercise, drinking less alcohol, drinking more water, I wanted to be intentional about doing things that would help my mind be sharper. Long story short, I came across Heights and found the short, snappy podcast episodes with qualified experts quite enlightening. But as my wife would no doubt agree, 
have always been a huge skeptic when it comes to supplements and never felt compelled to take it regularly. Even my daughter got involved in trying to make sure I take the ones we have at home, (laughs) but not even that helped. Yet, here I was, receptive to new things, so I took the plunge with an initial three-month subscription, and I'm still a customer today and feeling great for it. Now, I have no doubt that how I feel is as a result of all the changes I made, but I am convinced that the supplements is playing its part. So if you want to give it a go too, wander over to yourheights.com and use a Curious Life 10 at the checkout for a 10% discount. That's really, really interesting. Question here at this point, because now, uh, and those are the positives. That's the positives of going into a big company, right? What was it like going from a startup ecosystem or kind of culture going into something as more structured as that? I think the the structure made sense. I mean, if you think broadly enough, here's your laptop and here's your phone and sometimes it doesn't work and it's a massive process to replace it. It's it's terrible in that sense because the, the policies and procedures just get you down because in a, in a startup, if, if you need something, the business case is easy and you go and out and buy it. Uh, to justify any sort of investment or just appointing people or firing people had massive process to follow. So that was, I wouldn't say limiting, but obviously at times frustrating. But more, more often than not compensated for by being a massive brand with yeah. really talented individuals with massive clients. So you could, you could, uh, run around and have these fantastic conversations with a big implementation team behind you and you'd get the job done on clients that I would never dream of at Fifth Discipline. So I think the, the big difference though was in the startup, you got there purely on merit. In the big four, you got there because of brand, not because of working your way literally up. And, and on reputation. What was the biggest piece of the puzzle that you kind of added to yourself and took with you going forward from from your EY experience? Oh, I think um, the rounding as a consultant, as a professional, uh, with with leaders in the space that really understood how consulting works and how it should work. What about the networks? Uh, so, so kind of how I see it is two things, right? It's the learning from... And, and the sharpening of, of minds and skills from experienced people at the top of their game. But also on the network side, it's who you get exposed to and who the name of EY kind of gets you in front of. But when you go forward, you now know these people and you have learned these things. Mm-hmm. To give you a practical example, I implemented my last really big program with a bunch of guys that I thought were really talented. and. What's that now? Six years later, they contacted me, and, and we'll get to that part of the story. They contacted me and said, "I, how are you doing? Would you like to do something together?" And excellent. I mean, six years dormant network, and it's it all panned out very good. Fantastic. Okay, so now you've left EY, mm-hmm. and, and you've got these, you know, the, these added parts of your tool set, right? Um, where do you go from there? So I was headhunted by a German consulting firm uh, operating in the Middle East. So they had a small 30-man 
uh, office in in Abu Dhabi, and they said, you know what, your skills and background and what you can bring can can really add value to our team. And I said, you know what, um, I, I've been in the Middle East before, and I always wanted to go back and and see if I can uh, work a couple of years there, build up some equity, and and try and and build my investment and then venture capital on later on. Fantastic. So 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 you got the traveling part in there. Did you take your bicycle with you? Did you still cycle? Oh no. So you don't cycle anymore. Okay. Uh, well, well not during that time though. No. So that was that was proper management consulting. I flew from Dubai where I stay into Saudi on a weekly basis, stayed in a hotel for the whole week, flew back on the weekend. So you were already in Dubai at the time? No no no. So so Horvat um, headhunted me from EY in South Africa, and I decided to relocate to Dubai. So you leave EY, uh, headhunted by this German company, and you land in Dubai. Um, mm -hmm. Again, was there kind of a sense of, you know what, there's something new here, man. You know, let, let, me, let me check course. it out. I want to go and explore new places, new people. What, what, what was the, the, the kind of the driving force behind making that change from the big EY to how big was this new company? Uh, it's a thousand consultants, so very, very small compared to 200,000 of EY. Well, but it's still very, very large in its in its own right. Yes, but, but very large in Europe, but a 30-man uh, office in, in the Middle East. So Excellent. So it kind of had that startup vibe from an yeah. office perspective, mm -hmm. but still had a support of a larger company, albeit not EY. Um, yeah. But you could go there and you could really put your mark on it. Mm -hmm. And that's what they brought you in to do, right? Yes. So Excellent. So it was a wonderful, well, it is a wonderful firm. It's called Horvath and Partners Management Consultants. Um, I had a couple of good projects in Saudi Arabia, interesting clients. And it was a lot of government work, which, I mean, from a practical and a theoretical point of view, not far off from what I was doing, but it was never really interesting work. So that's that's why um, when I got the opportunity uh, two years later, I moved to a different German consulting firm. Funny enough, okay, to actually perform more on private sector and and still work with a lot more on the data and technology side than the pure management consulting side. Understood. The uh, question, just a quick quick diversion. What was it like, so, so culturally, right? So, so moving from South Africa into, uh, you know, the UAE essentially, where I think, uh, you know, business and, and business culture is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. How did you find that change? And what did you kind of learn from that experience initially? Um, obviously the cultures were very different. So you had the, the kind of the Arabic culture, which was, both in terms of colleagues and in our clients, and then the German culture, which was the core of the of the of team, course. and the you know, the European regional culture, still part of the team, but but just a little bit different. So, um, because I think 
because of my South African nature, I was used to multicultural, yeah, <laughs> managing and operating in a diverse, multicultural setting. That's very true. Yeah, and and people underestimate the value. So, yeah. can, can I just just for our listeners and, and and please hold that thought because because I want to continue with it. But just for the listeners, South Africa has. 11 official languages, <laughs> you know, and, and that I say that just as a, a kind of a, a, vis, a visual of um, the, the different cultures that coexist uh, in South Africa, and that is a natural part of life in South Africa. So you've got this experience of, of living, growing up in, and working in a multicultural environment. And I didn't actually think of the European, the German, the, 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 the Arabic um, kind of conversion of cultures, uh, but but take us take us from there. Yeah, so the the Arabic culture is a lot more uh, relational and a lot more, I would say, informal, and and it's difficult to read between the lines, right? So okay. very very respectful, um, but but you need to be very careful not to to assume the wrong things, right? So a, a typical thing that, that a client would tell you is like, um, yes, I'll do this by Friday, inshallah. So essentially it means, God willing, I'll do it by Friday. But the, the habits sometimes get to, yes, I'll do it maybe, and then God didn't will it. <laughs> so you'll get whatever you asked for a couple of days later. Okay. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that conflicted quite a lot with the German culture, which was very, very... You strange. said Friday. <laughs> yeah, you said Friday. <laughs> yeah. So at five o'clock in the afternoon, the email was checked and it wasn't there. So um, so there was a lot of uh, conflicting cultural norms. Um, the, I mean, there are many good and bad things to take from, from all of these cultures, but it was quite interesting to uh, to take the best parts of the different cultures and, and try and build on that. Fantastic. And I mean, that's, that's kind of what you try to do. Um, want to be successful. So, so, so you said, you said something earlier, right? Mm -hmm. You said, you know, people underestimate the value of being able to manage success or manage a business in a multicultural environment. Right. So, so you came in with the South African experience, you learned how to use that experience in a new environment with new cultures uh, and do that effectively. Obviously, lots of lessons learned, but now two years in, you're moving on. How did that kind of help you be more impactful in the new environment? Given that I was going to a, another German firm helped a bit because obviously they, they understood sure. what they understood and I understood them quite well. Um, I think the formality of the German approach of the first firm helped a lot in terms of just understanding what is um, what is not only expected but the way of doing things and, and how to apply different uh, different methods to problems, if you will. Um, but honestly, being in the region helped so much because. It's one thing to be appointed in, in, a, in a firm here in the Middle East and coming out from the cold from, from somewhere else. It's something else to understand the local practices and knowing how you can apply whatever works there to, to be a little bit more successful going forward. Gotcha. I would say that was 
that was a big thing. So if you look at recruitment in the region, in, in this Middle East region, there will be an emphasis on are you working in the region right now or have you worked in this region before? And if there isn't, it kind of counts against you because gotcha. uh, there will be this shock of that initial how do things work here uh, kind of setting. Sure. And how long have you been in the region now? So, so you living in Dubai for how long? Yes, five years now. Five years. So that is a whole lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And okay, so so now um, you know the, the data side. So now you're back into the data space, uh, data and technology a bit more. You know w- what what was what was the the focus area for you at that point? So so the firm where I joined was Deutsche Telekom's management consulting arm. So it was a lot more to do with a with a telco space, and these guys just had tons and tons of data so so the the data space in there is phenomenal if you're a data practitioner Um, i focused a lot on the technology uh, and innovation space around uh, cloud potential uh, potential architecture around uh, blockchain and digital wallets and uh, things like that did you work in the telco space before then no so I had one or two interactions uh, during EY, but but at a very, very superficial level. I guess. Okay, perfect. And 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 here's here's a question. So this is one of the reasons um, I love, absolutely love data, right? Is if you apply curiosity to just the flow of data, you can get to very quickly understand an industry, right? If you enter at one mm-hmm. point and you are curious enough to ask. Where did it come from? Where is it going to? Why am I applying these transformations to it? What are they going to do with this information, right? Uh, you, you very quickly start to kind of through that data flow, understand where it originates, right? And all the way through to how the business makes decisions to run and meet their objectives. You know, you, you get this end-to-end view of an industry, of an organization. Did you find that in working with the data within this new industry that you actually got to learn about that industry and be, and, and become more knowledgeable? I would say so, yes. But I, I think there are two ways to go about it, right? So either you can look at the data and work your way kind of upstairs and, and think about the decisions that they need to make and, and whether they actually do use that data to make the decisions, quite important. Yeah. Or you look at the decisions to be made and you go and try and find where the actual supporting data and the data flows and business rules, all those things are. Completely agreed. And quite often those two are are in isolation and those two are not communicated. But that's where the value is of a data practitioner. This is kind of, it's the convergence of both business and data, right? And understanding um, how that business works, but perhaps driven by the flow of data through the organization. So for me, how to extract and scale the value of data and analytics is simply to enable better and faster decisions. So now, um, how long did you stay with this company then? I think a year and a half. And the reason for leaving, for leaving was actually quite personal. So, well, well, personal in the sense that um, my daughter was born and I didn't want to travel to Saudi for a week on end. 
right? So, so the the lifestyle cool. was. Congrat! How old is your daughter now? Uh, she's now just over two years old. Congratulations, man! Only one. Only one. Yes. Okay. Cool. Are you planning to have more? Yes. Okay. So, and and where where's your wife? Sorry, where, where's your wife from? Where did you meet? Oh, we met in high school. Oh wow! And and you guys were together all the way through. So you moved to Dubai together? Oh no. Oh, we moved to Dubai together, but we met in high school. We were kind of in love when we Aww. were what sixteen years old, <laughs> oh, yeah. and then and then we 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 weren't for I don't know twelve years, and then on our ten year reunion of high school, we got together, started hanging out. I tried very hard, and eventually Yay. he said yes for going out formally, and then, then we got married. And and this is where you are today. Cool. And this is so, so you were saying that that you are planning on having another kid as well. Mm-hmm. And are you planning on being in Dubai for the foreseeable future? Yes. Cool. What is life now? We're going to come on to the next bit, right? Which which is, I guess, where you moving on to from the the year and a half when your daughter was born. And you know what? My kids are ten and eight, but I still remember the impact that just knowing that you have a child on the way, and the impact that has on your psyche, on the way that you think and what you prioritize. Child's not even born, but immediately, you know that your priorities have changed. And and every decision is kind of looked at through that lens. And in in, I think in a positive way. I love being a dad. You know, like everything in life, it comes with its challenges. But, you know, the, the one thing that's that that will always rise above anything else is the capacity that I have to love my children unconditionally, no matter what happens, you know, um, and and that's the biggest impact for me. So, um, I I am a very proud dad, and I love being a dad. Um, so, so, so you at this point where you know you, you know that your daughter's is on her way. You you've made a change and a decision to prioritize um, this change upcoming change in your life um, and you're in Dubai. But before we continue on that journey, what is Dubai like? What is it actually like living in Dubai? I mean, and how have you seen a change over these last five years? Because I've heard some awesome stuff about it, in all honesty. Honestly, before we got here, we had no idea what to expect. Nothing online will give you an indication of what you'll get when you when you actually arrive here. So we expected it to be very, very conservative, um, people dressing in, in traditional clothing, not sure if my wife will be able to go out or go running or drive or anything like that. And the the, the media is quite quite isolated in that in that regard. And um, obviously, I spoke with people who were here, and they said, "Look, it's not like that at all." But you do, you really don't know what to expect. And we've never traveled here before. We just said, "You know what? This is the opportunity, and we're going to go." And there's no there's no real discussion or testing or anything. But when we got here, it was it was completely different. So obviously, there's there's a lot of glitz and glamour that's usually associated with Dubai. So there's a lot of stuff that they have here that make it easy to spend a lot of money, right? So it's obviously an expensive place. Um, but the more that you travel around Dubai and, and the greater uh, 
United Arab Emirates, the more you see just kind of normal life if you actually look for it. So both Abu Dhabi and Dubai have massive suburbs. So we live in a suburban area with a park and a swimming pool and neighbors and dogs and all the stuff that you would expect in a, in a kind of traditional place, I guess. Yeah. And it was fantastic because in my first year, we stayed in an apartment in the marina and it was all concrete and uh, high rises and it, it, it looks really nice. But for a South African guy coming from a very, very green uh, a country with perfect weather, this was a massive, massive change. And I really missed the weather. I really missed seeing greenery. And I couldn't wait to get out during summer. And and now it's a lot more normal, acceptable. The summers are insanely hot. So it's it's really difficult. Um, but that's one of those things. Yeah, but, okay. But it's but you you love living there. Um, I or you've made a home for yourself there for the foreseeable. I, we have made a home for ourselves. We like living here, but we know that it's not a long-term destination. And we we simply don't know where to go from here. So so for now, I mean, we've we've launched this business uh, in the Middle East and I intend to grow it substantially. So uh, for the next Gotcha. So this yeah. this is on to the next bit now, right? So 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 you've given given us a, a kind of insight into Dubai and life in Dubai and your family. Um, and year and a half in, you decide, don't want to travel. What's the next step? Right. So so I decided to launch a search fund, which is, um, if I had to explain it in one sentence, it's borrowing money from private investors to go and buy a small business and run that business as the CEO and provide a very decent return to those investors. And through that process, you okay. get both to be the CEO operating a small business and you get an equity stake in the business. Um, gotcha. So I wanted to do that here in, in Dubai or in the UAE because I thought the market is okay. Uh, we wanted, uh, my business partner and I wanted to test whether we can actually find a business here. We looked for eight months and essentially turned over every stone that we, we thought was there. And we didn't find the business that made our list of requirements. Um, and we gotcha. decided to... So you mm -hmm. found the investors, but you couldn't find the business. Yes. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so, so eight months in, what, what, what do you decide? So what happens eight months in, you couldn't find a business... Uh, to make this work, you've got the investors. Where do you go from there? Um, well, we phoned up the investors and said, look, I would rather not waste your money on a bad investment and call it a day. And they were, they knew the, the possibility for that coming in and they were fine with that. So, so okay. But did you spend any of their money up until no, that point? No, no, no. Perfect. You know, and, and, and this is kind of one of my firm beliefs, right? Is that your reputation will follow you. The decisions that you make will absolutely come back tomorrow, whether those decisions were uh, with integrity uh, or not. 
it will follow you. And, and that's kind of what I see from, from what you've just said is you went, sold a story, you know, uh, tried to make it work and went back and said, you know what? Yes, the idea makes sense, but we couldn't find the right vehicle to transact this. Um, so let's call it quits. And who knows what will happen tomorrow? Right? But you've left an impression on the people that you were doing business yep. with and a positive one. So, so okay. So, so, so that ends. Where to from there? So that was an interesting space because I didn't know what I wanted to do next because I really wanted to do that. Um, and I then was phoned up by an ex-colleague from the from Horvath, um, who was at PwC, and he said, look, we are trying to build this uh, performance management unit at PwC in the Middle East. Um, we expand that at least. Please come and help us do that. And I said, okay, as a contractor, I'll do that uh, as a at a limited contract. And I joined PwC, and we we built the unit for for that uh, for that year, which was then last year. Nice one. And 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 what do you so what do you are you still doing that today? No. So right. So so during that time, these uh, colleagues from from EY uh, contacted me. They they happened to be in the region. They said let's have let's have breakfast and and discuss ideas and life and everything. And we had a fantastic time. And and it came about that they had this. Uh, small advisory business in South Africa that was growing really nicely and they wanted uh, someone in the Middle East to partner with them and start the Middle East office and the Middle East business. And I said, look, I'd love to join, but I'm in the middle of uh, engagements with PwC. I had running projects and I wanted to close that out successfully before I moved on. And I said, no worries, we'll we'll wait and we'll see how things evolve. And just after that, that's when COVID hit. So during the COVID period, I continued to run uh, the projects at PwC. Um, and then I had a, a short sabbatical in South Africa where I met these guys again and said, look, this is the time, the time is right. So let's Let's start this business in this year, which is twenty one. Yeah, excellent. So, so, so where we are now? I mean, this is this is actually a f fascinating story. So, so where you are now, essentially, right, is you've got all of this experience as a management consultant. You've got the experience of running the business uh, or running a successful business. You know, you've got the experience with data and technology and building product. Uh, you've got the 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 exposure and the experience of working within the UAE and and multicultural teams and environments. You come with this wealth of experience, the opportunity to grow something that I'm assuming is going to part, be partly yours, right? Or that you will have equity in. And now we're at the cusp of that. So explain to our listeners, right? With all this wealth of experience and and knowledge. What are you looking to grow? And what does the business do? Right. So let's start with what the business does. So it is an advisory business that helps CFOs and finance functions embrace digital and digital transformation, right? So there's uh, a component of digital strategy for the finance function. There's 
systems implementation, so typical corporate performance management systems implementation and integration. There's a bit of data management, which is usually a problem in that space. Um, then also augmented with, uh, with automation, meaning robotic process automation. And then lastly, uh, data analytics. So using all of this financial data to actually predict uh, certain components within the process, but also what to expect going forward. So, so it's in essence financial services uh, all the way from ideation and and consulting on how to innovate within the business through to implementation, and that's the use of both um, business process engineering and and automation. That's the use of data and analytics to drive better decisions or to to kind of. Uh, form part of this transformation journey. So it's using that process to help organizations make better decisions and meet their objectives. Yes, specifically in the finance function, right? And oh, in the, so not financial services, yeah. but within the finance function. Yes. So our client is typically the CFO of any medium to large organization. Understood. So essentially, this targets someone like the CFO in the finance department, not industry specific, right? But the finance function, the CFO looking to transform the way that their function operates all the way through from ideation through to implementation and the best use of data and analytics to achieve that objective. Correct. That makes sense. And and can you just give us an example then, right? So when you say that you are looking to to improve the finance function, give us an example of of you know a, a use case. Yeah. So so typically um, typically organizations have a big ERP, which is either SAP or Oracle, right? And you would have a corporate performance software package on top of that which is again, either Oracle HFM or SAP BPC. And we, we believe strongly in a, in a solution called OneStream software, which is also corporate performance management, uh, leveraging cloud and AI um, and an integrated platform to actually implement this, uh, this solution. And we are, quite confident that that OneStream software will displace SAP and Oracle in that particular niche just because of the depth and integration and better solution it offers to to the finance function right so that's that's on the system side of it um, what that looks like in in real world is we go in and have a couple of discussions with a CFO we understand the actual problem, and usually that's over-reliance on, on spreadsheets for actually moving around and transacting uh, on, on supporting data. And that is, that is a reason for big uh, data quality issues and, and process inefficiency and so on. Mm -hmm. And we help them to derive a strategy to say, okay, this is what good actually looks like. This is how you can improve. Yes, maybe there's a component of software implementation or replacement, but this is how you should handle your data. This is how you should think of your data. And this is how you could use data to actually improve your decision-making and make it a lot more efficient for where you are. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, then there's a bit of a discussion on whether we are the right partner to implement that or to find someone else that can actually implement uh, what is needed in that space. Okay, awesome. I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's a very it's a very familiar story today where, you know, the competitors or the competitive landscape um, for the bigger organizations like SAP and Oracle, it isn't other large organizations doing everything they do, but it's small agile startups, right, that focus on a particular niche and, and, and uses technology and data and analytics to improve just that. Exactly. Right? And, and, but the way that they do it allows them to add a lot more value to improving that process because they are so laser focused on that particular um, niche. Right. And, and you find that now. And that's what I love about this technology world is that everything is impacted by data analytics, things that you didn't necessarily think because there's so much data out there. You know, the innovative use of data with analytics and the expertise, because data and analytics in and of itself um, doesn't do anything. Right. Yep. It's when you apply expert knowledge on top of that, that you are able to extract real value. And can I just add to that point? I think even even though you might have that insight or have the information supporting that decision, most often that decision does not get made or the analytic solution does not get used to actually make that decision. Completely agree. So there, there's a lot of lost opportunity when you get a data science output or a specific analytics answer and you say oh, i'm not really confident in what is what is the underlying thesis for this data or what the data is telling me so i still go with what uh, with my gut so that 100 that leaving the potential on the table and not, not capitalizing on the opportunity you've just touched on what's probably my key focus area which is the last mile of analytics i believe that you know in order for, and this is regardless of, of the industry, regardless of the niche, that the output, the analytical output, right, being consumed by the masses in a way that is aesthetic, in a workflow that makes sense, in a workflow that has been designed to solve those business problems and essentially minimize the number of decisions that are made within business. And that micro decisions, you know, you can have thousands, millions of decisions made in a business that could potentially over time deviate uh, from the, the strategic objectives. So I believe that to effectively make use of um, or scale the value of analytics, right, you have to nail the last mile. And so, so this kind of naturally brings me on to, to my next question, right? As I've just said, I believe that there is no better time than the one we're living in, right? At least as far as data technology and analytics is concerned, uh, because it is commonly and widely accepted that not only does data play a big part in the success of a business, but I think arguably um, also in the survival of businesses. I do believe, however, that realizing the value of analytics um, still needs a bit more work. But it is our collective responsibility to ensure that the the value or the realization of value is achieved. And with that said, or with that in mind, 
and I ask you, pick up the mantle with me. Let's do this. What is the one thing or the two things that you believe you will do to further that cause? I would say just continuous engagement with our clients, right? So we honestly don't feel that it's it's worth our interaction with a client if we don't bring value to them. Because at the end of the day, our reputation will get a massive knock if we just ask some decent fees for not adding any value. And the value gets added by helping them to improve their processes, get their data faster, get it better, and make some better decisions. And at the end of the day, you'll have a financial business case to drive these these projects forward. There's no doubt that, that it will be driven by the bottom line. Excellent. And so, so what you're saying is one, two, ten clients at a time ensure that what you deliver transforms their business through the use of data and analytics. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so, I mean, think about it. I think a big problem in, in our world is that it's very difficult for data practitioners to quantify the financial impact that their analytics can actually have. And you'll find that in the analytics space is where you get an astronomical ROI. But a couple of things need to be in place, right? So you need to have the data in a, well, you need to have the volume, you need to have the right data, you need to have it in a certain structure, so on and so forth. But the ROI for analytics projects are higher than than other projects that I've seen. So um, that's the, the one area where you can have a completely asymmetric return on investment. And it's it's very difficult to quantify, but the moment that you demonstrate it, all our clients uh, and what I've seen have been very impressed with the actual impact. Marinus, that's fantastic. Uh, so what's the name of the business and how do people get hold of you? Right, it's called Jigsaw Advisory and our website is jigsawadvisory.global, and you can also reach us on LinkedIn and Twitter, but we push a lot of good content on LinkedIn um, with our blog and different webinars and so on. Just an, uh, just an addition, so our ambition is to become one of the world's most respected finance transformation firms, and we believe we can do it. We have a great track record and we have fantastic people to help us get there. So for anyone that is interested, we'll include the contact details as well as links to the blog and the website and how to get hold of Marinus and Jigsaw Advisory uh, in the comments of the podcast itself. Uh, but we'll also include it in the blog we write alongside each episode. Okay, so so I think we're reaching the end. We're reaching the end of this interview and I've really, really enjoyed this 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 time we've spent together, Marinus. Um, one last question. Music for me is, is something that is inspiring, right? And it, it, it certainly helps when I need to focus, uh, listening to the right kind of music helps me think. What would you say if I ask you for a single song at the moment in the past that inspires curiosity in you? What would that be? Um, inspires curiosity is is something I'll struggle to come up with. I can give you a song that that uh, has helped me think of of just swinging for the fences. 
you need to do something and you need to do something very big. And when you think about it that way, you, you look for inspiring music. And um, I'm not sure if you know the the band. I think it's a British band. It's called Kasabian. I don't. And the song is called Clubfoot. So Kasabian and Clubfoot. Okay, I'm going to listen to it. I'll send it on the chat and you'll absolutely love this band. I promise you. Okay, looking forward to it. Um, Marinus, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Um, thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, and yeah, I am sure our paths will cross. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll carry on our mission of realizing value from data, technology and analytics. Great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, then please like, share and subscribe. Original music created by SolarKid, produced by Spotcaster at Boabalb, and branding by Victoria at Generic, a Moaxan company. <laughs>